Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. When you ask year-round and seasonal residents what they like about the coast of Maine, they'll likely tell you about the natural environment, clean, productive waters, access to the shore, field, and forest, and something about the scale of community life, that overall sense of place. But what about the environment that we build, the built environment? And here today, we've got some guests in the studio who can help us talk about that, think about that built environment, celebrating how our buildings contribute to our sense of place. I'm glad to have some old friends in the studio with us. Um, Rock Caivano is a retired architect. Welcome to you, Rock. Nice to be here. Robert Knight is is a uh, practicing architect, um, Knight Associates uh, Architects in Blue Hill. Welcome to you, Bob. Uh, great to be here. And Barbara Sassman is a designer and draft person, and she's also chair of the Bar Harbor Design Review Board. We may talk a little bit about that role in the community life. Welcome to you. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about how you um, got into your kind of um, work. Uh, Rock, start with you. Um, what what drew you to the world of architecture? Well, I went to college and, and majored in pre-med and realized that was a um, – something that I just wasn't naturally attracted to. So then I got sort of thought, well, how do I want to spend the rest of my life? And I realized I really liked fine arts, architecture, sculpture, all of that. So I pursued that and graduated from college and went to architecture school where there was a wonderful um, dean, Charles Moore, who told us that he thought if we were going to be architects, we ought to know how to build. So our first class... Our first year class, Bob and I were in the same class together. We actually built a building in Kentucky, and it was wonderful from wonderful experience from that time on. Um, we've built a number of buildings physically by ourselves. Had a company called Elephant Track, and then answered an ad in the New York Times and came up to teach at College of the Atlantic. Mm. And Bob, you a similar kind of uh, track, but um, different inspirations, perhaps. Uh, yeah, um, I, I'd come to Maine in the summers uh, with a, the visit of a friend of mine from school on Chibig Island, and I always thought it was a wonderful place. But I'd never been east of Freeport, and um, 
couple years out of architecture school, uh, one of my classmates, not Rock, but another Mm -hmm. one, said, how would you like to come to Maine and build a captain of industry house on an island off the coast? And they were willing to pay me twice what I was making in the architect's office. And so we came to Jonesport and built a house on Wass Island. It wasn't a captain of industry house, <laughs> but it was for captain of industry. And that took me – I spent a couple of years in Washington County and uh, thought I'd I, – I sort of knew I would always live here, but I didn't want to just end up here. I wanted it to be a conscious choice. So when <clears throat> wanted to try a warm place. I went to California. thought I'd become a famous architect out there. Uh, but instead I met Lucia, my wife, which was a much better deal. And uh, she had a couple of kids and – didn't seem like the right place to raise kids to me. There was no visible work being done in Santa Monica. People, cars backed out of their garages in the morning and came back with money. You know, there was no <laughs> farmers or fishermen or people cutting down trees or anything like that. So Maine looked like a good place. We ended up in Blue Hill. I called Rock up and he said, wow, this is great. And he had work to do and didn't have time to do it because he was teaching at COA. And, uh, you know, that that's what led us to be here. And it was a perfect place for mm. us. Mm. Remains so. And uh, Barb Sassman, um, I call you Sass in, in uh, real life. So <laughs> how did you get here? What were your interests in, in architecture and design? Well, I came to COA as a student. I was going to be a forest ranger. Uh-huh. And I met Joanne Carpenter, who taught art history and architecture history and that was it. I took one class from her and decided that was where I was going. So I sort of came into architecture the back way. I came in through the history of architecture. And Rock arrived at COA the same year I did. So I started taking classes from him on how to build things and how to design things. So that's And when all was said and done and I graduated, it was about time to restore the turrets at the college. And Rock and uh, Harris Hyman, who was an engineer teaching at the college, the two of them went on halftime and hired me full-time to work on restoring that building. I think the fact that MDI is so full of historic buildings of a certain period, that period became what I really was interested in, that turn-of-the-century shingle style and just the interesting other styles that happen on the island. Mm. So you want to talk a little bit more about turrets um, as, a, as a building? Both you and Rock had that experience. What, what uh, is the building? Our listeners may not know um, that building and, and what's distinctive about it. Well, the building was designed by Bruce Price, who was a very famous architect. Most of his buildings are down in Tuxedo Park uh, in New York, but he was also did the uh, Chateau Frontenac. He did that the same year he did the turrets. So uh, it, we're sort of a mini Chateau Frontenac, if you will. <laughs> it really is, too. The details are the same. When we worked on the building, we would call the head of the buildings and maintenance at the Chateau Frontenac, and he would give us advice on how he fixed the flashing around the chimneys or whatever. Hmm. It was so, 1895 mm-hmm. it was completed. Yeah, and they just really just completed another renovation of it. We did ours. I think we had... A quarter of a million to work with and we came in, did more than they'd asked for and under budget, but yeah. we really were just it was a shoestring budget for us to So it was, a, it was a summer home, designed as a summer home is now part of the College of Atlantic Right, yes. it, hadn't been, it hadn't been occupied for 30, 40 years and it, so. was, it was designed for a family in Cincinnati and it had a history but then they sort of abandoned it 
was a derelict building on the College of the Atlantic property on Frenchman's Bay, and it was a party place in the 50s and 60s, and it was quite demolished and really depressing inside. And one of the professors at COA realized the only way we were going to keep the troublemakers out, he, he took a couple of signs and we hand-printed caution. This building has been fumigated with lead arsenate and <laughs> such and such, all these chemical words. And then we bought cans of Raid from the hardware store, saturated the cardboard, and then stapled it to the windows. Mm. Nobody ever went in that building again. <laughs> Barack, you, you kind of um, helped frame this um, by doing some thinking and writing about um, early kind of um, architecture. You, you talked about the Europeans coming to the coast of Maine, and they were both bringing things with them, yes. but also learning perhaps from native peoples. Tell us a little bit about what you were thinking there, and that will launch our conversation. Well, very quickly, the, the first Europeans to come and settle along the coast of Maine uh, were uh, Champlain brought them in 1614, and they brought their buildings with them. Huh. They were pre-cut timber buildings, and they put them up on St. Croix Island. And they also starved to death on St. Croix Island because they were afraid of the native people who were trying to help them. And the native people were on the opposite shore, and they sunk their canoes to preserve them through the winter ice. And so they couldn't get over to help the people and teach them to eat the bark inside of pine trees and stuff like that. So the first people to come brought the buildings with them. And then the subsequent folks began to have a more uh, understanding and friendly and trusting relationship with the native people and began to learn the, from the structures they saw them build. And there's a, people know much more about this than I, but they, the, the, the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot people would come down to Mount Desert Island, let's say, or along the coast of Maine for fishing and, and the summer. They plant their crops in the up in Old Town and up the river, and then come down to MDI and and build these um, bent wood, willow, ash, uh, twig kind of bent wood structures, and then weave birch bark skins over them because the climate is wet and freeze-thaw, and basically that will quarry certain materials apart in a, in a year's time. So they saw the sort of their timber-framed Scandinavian, European uh, half-timber structures, but their daub and wattle didn't work, That's the, the mud and, and, and straw, and the sort of thatched roofs didn't work too well. They began to build log structures, which they did know how to do, and then they began to emulate some of the native people's treatment to protect the buildings from the weather. Mm. So they were bringing um, some things with them, but they were adapting. They were adapting and learning from the people that had been here for 10,000 years. So the buildings that we see in Maine now um, don't go back that far. Um, no, we're no. talking perhaps on the way over that um, many of our buildings aren't. Uh, the older, older buildings are um, mid-1800s, late-1800s. Um, what were buildings like at that time that, that um, allowed them to pers persevere through this weather? How did those buildings show up. Um, uh, Bob, you've got buildings in Blue Hill that um, go back to that era. Um, yeah, and and I've, we've worked on some buildings that uh, y one of the first jobs I had here was to do a renovation for a building in Sargentville that had been in 
their this family, his name is Sargent, um, for generations. And that building was built by shipwrights. Mm-hmm. It was a timber frame structure. It was 150 years old at that point, and it was perfect. You know, mm-hmm. it was. You just marveled at the quality of everything, and everything had been thought out. Conversely, we just replaced a building, essentially, that was probably built a little bit, somewhat earlier than that, on Deer Isle. But it was, and it it had been well built, but it was just exhausted. And it was a timber frame building, uh, boarding on the outside and all, but the foundation had gone, and it just... You had to tear it down. So was but, this um, because of lack of attention um, versus the construction design um, kind of phase of things? The the shipwright or the the building done by shipwrights held up probably for both reasons. It was well designed and people took care and, of it and maintained. And the other one was not and actually had some unfortunate attentions. Mm. I mean, one of the things that happened is a lot of these buildings that for years were not insulated and the wind just sort of blows through them. They stay dry and they they really last forever. But once you seal them up and make them weather tight and winterizable, then you gotta be really careful because if you don't do it right, they sort of self destruct pretty So soon. that's that Native American notion exactly. that they had to breathe. They yeah. had to breathe. Is the, there's a freeze thaw wet dry cycle that takes wood wood buildings and makes them expand and contract and expand and contract and if you don't allow them to breathe like that they tear themselves apart mm-hmm. or they'll the you know mold and rot will eventually deteriorate them so the the these sort of early people quickly realized that cedar wood was what attracted them to the island originally they would they would kick, I know a little bit about Mount Desert they'd come up Soam Sound Abraham Soames would come up Soam Sound and they'd f- see a beautiful stand of oak and Ralph Stanley has has said I've uh, heard this second hand but he said you know probably those original colonists that came ashore came ashore where they saw big stands of trees that would help them build their shelters and their boats and stuff and uh, among those trees would be cedars in the wetlands, and there was an easy one to split, and a wonderful wood that expands when it gets wet and seals off the inside, and then contracts down and breathes when it's dry. But as Bob said, in recent years, when we became very aware of the energy we were consuming, to seal those buildings up probably doomed a bunch of them. Mm. So when a visitor comes to Maine, um, they see the natural habitat. They see the, the trees, perhaps, that uh, Abraham Soames and others um, saw or the, the next generation. What are they seeing in terms of a, a built environment? Um, what, what would you point out to our listeners that uh, would say, oh, this is something special? I'll just remind listeners that we're tuned to, you're tuned to WERU's Talk of the Towns. In the studio with us, we have Barbara Sassman, a designer and draft person uh, from Bar Harbor, uh, Robert Knight of Knight Associates in uh, Blue Hill, and Rock Cavano, retired architect from the Bar Harbor area. Um, but, Rock, what, what do people see um, that, that's part of the built environment that, that uh, is special about this place? Well, I think it's a scale to begin with. And scale is such an iffy word. It seems like a kind of an arty word to, to folks. 
but it's basically the size of things and it, and the size related to the thing next to it. And we've all seen buildings where the size was too big for the neighborhood. McMansions is a good example. Mm. Almost anything. What's wrong with this? It's a lot of money got sunk into it and a lot of frou frou on it. Why doesn't it look good? Well, it's just too damn big. Mm. You know, um, up here, I think. Basically, what you see is what a farmer or a farmer's family could build or a boat builder's family could build in a season. And they have these you know, wonderful books written about quarter capes and half capes and three-quarter capes and full capes, which had to do with the timber frame and what rooms you built first around the fireplace and so forth. But they could build a scale that was appropriate. They, they had... I remember when I was practicing, I used to tell clients, you know, you want to build a solar house, just build it the way a farmer who had to cut the trees, lug them to some place, cut the firewood and burn it. They knew how to respond to the landscape around them and often didn't choose the highest point on the land for the view of the ocean. They chose a place that was protected from the northwest winter winds and and gathered sunlight, mostly in the afternoon, because the morning sunlight was often foggy. Hmm. So you would get these buildings built in direct response to the climate and the landscape they were in, and they look beautiful. Hmm. When you look at them, there's just a natural, attentive intelligence about how those buildings were built. And I think that's something that resonates with strangers who have never been here before Hmm. and look at them. Bob, what would you add to that? Well, I think another thing that happened was it was much harder to build a house in those days. It was uh, took a long time. It was a huge investment that was multi-generational in most cases. In this century, or in, in, the, in the 20th century, somewhere along the way, houses sort of became commodities. And you build it and you sold it. And, um, An investment type yeah, thing. Yeah, and... And and the building part of it became more automated. It wasn't the people that were living in it or the neighbors who built it. And so because it was faster, um, it was easier for things to not evolve. Um, you know, people always cite the example of Italian hill towns as being this sort of wonderful organic thing. And they, and they are, but it's because it's so multi-generational – or was until now. Um, it, it when when buildings became things that you bought and sold more than lived in, um, you you lost that connectedness to the land. It's also realistically because they've been here for a while. Stuff that's old looks like it belongs there because sort of by definition it does belong there you know <laughs> so i think of of the uh, the jonathan fisher painting of blue hill yeah and and um a, a sense of scale you you mm-hmm. you could see the village kind of laid out there um and the relationship to the the forest and the field yeah 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 uh, sass what 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 would you say to to visitors um in terms of what they're they're seeing in terms of the built environment when they come to maine well these guys have been talking about the historic buildings but history continues. I mean, we're always making new history. And so there's a lot of new buildings going up. And some of them are really wonderful and and have a a lovely conversation with the buildings next to them, even though they're quite modern and the building next to them might be 100 years old. Uh, Unfortunately, we've got some others that we're not so happy with. But um, towns towns like Wiscasset and Soamsville, when you go through and you see these beautiful historic buildings... They're sort of kept that way, and the 
the town center just stays that way. But towns like Bar Harbor have new buildings going up all the time and old buildings coming down and some you know dreadful buildings from the 50s that happily are coming down and being replaced by other new ones. But uh, So I think it's the... The nice thing about Maine is, in, in many cases, what we have is architecture that's really beautiful and that the new buildings that are added to that are respectful of that. Hmm. Um, that's not always the case, but it, I think that's what draws a lot of people here. Hmm. So the, that um, notion of, of having a, a kind of a conscious, unconscious choice, the people of Somesville on Mount Desert Island... Um, they, they often uh, say that there's an ordinance that says that you have to paint your buildings white. That's probably not the case, but um, yeah. all those buildings are white. There's a conscious choice um, by the residents or the people who have come in to buy those to keep them um, of a, of a same, uh, similar style and fashion. Yeah. What's interesting about places like Somesville, and this is one of the things I think that got me into architecture in the first place, this history, is that how society and uh, what's going on in the world affects the houses, the architecture style. So, for example, in Somesville, those houses wouldn't have been white to begin with. Now everyone's white, or there's a few pale yellow ones. <laughs> they would have been all sorts of colors. Huh. And what happened was um, Jefferson was trying to get the country away from every, every architect, uh, every building that we had built until then really was a copy of something from England that they had seen in England or, or wherever they had come from. And Jefferson was saying, okay, we're a new country, we're divorced from England. At the same time, Greek was, Greece was going through uh, its uh, bid for independence. And so here was, the, here was the cradle of democracy that we are looking, our government is looking toward. And here's the Greeks trying for independence just as we had. And all of a sudden, every building in the whole <laughs> place turned the gable end toward the street, made mm-hmm. and put giant coins, the, these big blocks on the corners, to make it look like an old Greek building and painted everything white because by that point all the old Greek temples had lost all their amazing colors because they would have been yellow and blue and red oh. and you know bright mm-hmm. colors. But all of a sudden here is this, this thing that's sweeping through the country in architecture, in places like in, in, up here, and then places like New York where we've got Troy and Syracuse and Ithaca and all those places that were named after Greeks that were happening at the same time. So it's all interconnected, and that's the kind of thing I really like mm-hmm. about it. We've been talking mostly about residences. What about commercial structures? Um, each of you probably can, can think of villages that keep some of the old, especially down east, and, and you've mentioned being working in Washington mm-hmm. County, where those old structures, um, unless they find a new use, they're going to crumble. So it's about new uses um, as well. Is that right? I mean... Yeah, I, I was joking as somebody yesterday about people ever since I've been to Maine buying property in Eastport because Eastport's <laughs> next year is going to be. Right. And there's a lot of wonderful commercial buildings there. I always think of those, the, the buildings that have the, that are brick and with stone mm-hmm. lintels like you see along the street in Searsport. That's the, that's the vernacular commercial mm-hmm. architecture mm-hmm. in Maine for me. I never got a chance to build anything like that. Almost did up in Caribou once, mm. but didn't work out. <laughs> um, well, didn't they just do something with the, the power station in, on the river in Bangor? Didn't they just fix that up? I think that that's now. And, yes. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Did and a good job. And that's the yeah. kind of thing we were looking to yeah. try to get more of. 
So, um, Rock, you mentioned um, in a conversation before the radio show that um, beds and breakfasts have been part of this ability to protect architecture in some way. Absolutely. I mean, when we came up here in the early 70s, there was a lot of beautiful old architecture just deteriorating, paint peeling and, you know, shingles missing from the roof and places like the turrets. Beautiful, beautiful historic buildings that we treasure today, but they were just deteriorating. Something happened in the 80s, and my gosh, young couples or couples that wanted to have a mom-and-pop business would buy these big old white, quote, white elephants and turn them into bed and breakfast. And when we came back to Mount Desert in 1990, could not believe the town. I mean, all of these buildings all of a sudden were in bloom. They were repainted, refinished, the windows were replaced, and there were booming businesses. They still are. Mm. It's like a monopoly game a little bit along the coast of Maine. I think less so inland, and I think to the benefit of inland, it's less so. But, you know, now there's a sort of a hotel game going on with bigger and bigger hotels being built in places, and that'll eventually. It was the case in... 1895 in Bar Harbor, there were these huge, you know, blocks, wooden, wooden structures, right? Yeah, wooden structures, and that's going on as well. So we skipped over um, kind of the the, the kind of shingle style house and rock. Maybe you could describe that and and some some examples of that and why that's a significant piece of of our our landscape that uh, people come to kind of expect here on the coast of Maine that they they value, they honor. Well, quickly, uh, probably most of your listeners know this, but. You know, the the uh, up until um, the um, middle 1800s, the uh, American architects were emulating European styles, and about then was a sort of an a first industrial revolution. Uh, people made enough money that they could flee the cities that they were polluting, and that uh, also had. Uh, typhoid fever and stuff like that and go to much healthier climates like like Mount Desert and uh, along the coast of New England and as they came up these folks that had been successful in their in their lives you know were aware of these beautiful buildings that were made by the homesteaders and the farmers and the boat builders and the folks that lived here year round and how elegant and and beautifully proportioned they were thoughtful i think there's a time to pay attention to where you are and what you have to work with that was made manifest in the buildings that were here and they were taken by it and they went back and then the architects and artists followed them and they were there were sketching tours. These architects would take sketching tours all through Europe, uh, all through New England, and and um, painters as well. The captains of industry that started all this, and the vacationers, rusticators that started it, be, be, were very attracted to it. When they started to build homes for themselves up here, they wanted to have homes that looked like we're here, we're hmm. born here. Hmm. That was the American shingle style. 1850, something like that, started. I'm, I'm, I think no, 1870s. Yeah. 1870s. Yeah. And, and the, in Vincent Scully's book on the stick and shingle style in America, the, the, the Redwoods, which still exists at the end of the shore path in Bar Harbor, was considered the ultimately wonderful shingle style building built and inspired all the rest that kind of came after it. 
That was William Ralph Emerson. It was something like 1870-something. Yeah. That was the first one. Yeah. It was stunning. Is still stunning. And it, inspirational. And it, it's not only inspired a new sort of approach toward buildings. It had a kind of a rustic look to it, even though they were huge. But also, um, it's sort of the interior of these buildings opened up. And so you can see, like, in the turrets, there's this formal reception hall, and then there's the men's smoking room and the parlor for tea and stuff like that. As the shingle style evolved, all of a sudden those rooms began to blend into each other and became open plans. And that's really set off a whole new uh, confidence and, and, and uh, approach toward building design in America that was, was unique to America. And it was inspired by these same people that came on boats when, and cut down trees and notched the timber together and split the shingles. Maybe when we um, resume our conversation, we'll, we'll kind of come back and say, well, what, what's happening today? Is that a different kind of situation today? Um, but I'll just remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking about celebrating how our buildings contribute to our sense of place here in, in this part of Maine and uh, New England. Rock Cavano is with us, Robert Knight, and Barbara Sassman. We welcome your calls as well. If you'd like to participate in our conversation, give us a call at one 625 936 that's one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. So, people, um, you're in the profession of design and, and building. Um, uh, how do people um, approach you? Do they do they have a sketchbook of, of vernacular architecture, or are they looking at the New York Times um, Sunday Supplement and seeing a building that's in California and they want one in Maine? What's what's the what's the marketplace out there? For me, it's interesting because I'm actually not a registered architect like Mm -hmm. these two. Mm -hmm. So I I don't actually have a style that I have to sell. And so what I get to do is a bunch of different things. And so people will come to me and say... I've been I've been sketching this on the computer or I've been hand sketching this and here's this here's this house I really want. And my joy is to take something that somebody's thought about so long and and really worked on and actually say, "Okay, well, that will work, but this won't. You need a little bit more room here to get down the hallway or think about trying to get the queen-size bed up mattress up the staircase or that kind of thing." But I get to work in all sorts of styles and it's it's really fun. I I ask what they what they like and because of it's not like the coast of new jersey where you've got a spaceship next to something uh some modern brick building next to an old whatever it's not that kind of weirdness but there is there is a, a charm of trying to take a style like a japanese tea garden and fit it into maine which actually does fit in pretty well or something modern as long as it speaks to its environment that's the that's the thing you really want to do so for me because I don't have to, I think for architects, they have to sort of sell their aesthetic. And people mm-hmm. come to them because they've seen a house that they've done, they really liked it, and they want something like it. Mm. For me, they just come to me because I'm the least expensive member of the <laughs> community. <laughs> I don't know about that, but, but yeah. how, how do you approach that? Yeah, yeah I, I think I, I do pretty much what SAS does. Um, you're right, you, there's a certain visibility increase when you're licensed architect but people have said to me over there's oh I, I can always tell Bob Nighthouse eh, no you can't I mean <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, I agree I, I, we we've done 
extraordinarily traditional houses and some pretty contemporary ones. I just I try and take the stuff that the people have as assets. I mean, sometimes people come in with a banker's box filled with cataloged files. They've been thinking about this for years. And so and I say to them, I've got to pick your brain. You've got to download all this into me because if I don't, they're not going to like what I do, hmm. you know, because they hmm. – I've got to – They fig- already have a picture in their mind. Yeah, I've right. got to figure out what that is and then make it work on their site and something that they can afford to build and and that kind of stuff. And and uh, that for me has always been the exciting part hmm. of, of doing this. I think SAS and I practice pretty much the same way. I mean uh, – Uh-oh, Rock, does that set you up? No, I <laughs> – yeah, they do. I'm the, he doesn't oh, practice no, I only do it one way. No, no, I, I – agree with them completely and i think that's part of the attraction of working in maine you you really don't want to be a one-note architect up here you're kind of like a country doctor or more appropriate you're a midwife (laughs) folks come up here and they have this romantic vision of things i think one thing i feel personally that as an architect i feel like i want to defend the environment any way they want to live, any style they want to have, I'll do the best I can to make that work. And sometimes, personally, I fail at it and just admit it to them and help them find somebody that's better. But most of the time it works uh, trying to – well, I got this quote. I knew uh, we were going to do this, and I wrote it down. This is from an uh, architect named Alvar Alto. Architecture is a synthesis of life in materialized form. Basically, it's their life. You're just the midwife to helping it become a materialized form. And the harder you, you work and the more carefully you learn about their life and who they are and find the wonderful parts of it, the more beautiful the building becomes. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with the architect. Mm-hmm. You just sit there and you kind of help it happen. So um, you've got two things going, uh, their, their life yes. and the, the environment that they're coming into. Yes. And you're trying to make a match there somehow. Exactly, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, har- the hardest job I ever had was a client who came and said, here's the site. I said, well, what style? You know, what's your life like? What's your... He said, oh, just design me a house. And I'm going, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah. It's right. going to have two bedrooms. You know, okay. Right. Well, that was the, the architecture school problem. You know, you'd get these very vague assignments. It, it's much easier to practice architecture than to go to architecture school because... <laughs> In the real world, you've got a budget, you've got an actual site, you've got a timeline, you've got lots Builders. of crazy things that people want to do. And so you can – it's like the pieces of things that you uh, can put together and hopefully out of that my, – my goal is always that when the house is done, people are in it, their friends come to see it for the first time. And they walk into the house and they say to the owners, wow, this house looks just like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, right. when, that's, when, that's when I'm happy. Sure. And that, that's when the clients are happy, sure. too. <laughs> or when they come into a place and they really like it and they don't know why. Yeah. It's kind mm-hmm. of, uh, what we work at is this level just slightly below the level of immediate perception. The proportion of things and the scale of things and the relation of one to the other and the views and the sunlight and the passive solar, blah, 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 all that stuff. If you really succeed, people just get a smile on their face, but they don't really know why. And Yeah, nor should they. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Charles Moore influenced us tremendously, both of us, 
and I sort of wrote down here somewhere that he he sort of taught us that you didn't have to shout about design. And I think Rocky and I probably came here because you don't you didn't have to shout about it. It could be subtle, it could be quiet, it could be if you're in Los Angeles, you maybe do have to shout about design. In in California, houses are essentially symbolic. Um, you can live outside, you know, so <laughs> they they take on whole different layers of meaning. Um, here, you, you got to there. It has to be shelter, hmm. you know, and that gives a kind of reality to it that is fun for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, you cannot ignore the climate here. Mm-hmm. So, all of you have had a kind of building experience as well as the design experience. How do those things work together? The because you you talked about the early builders along the coast of Maine having a knowledge about um, their their place, um, how wood goes together, how wood works. How does that um, translate in terms of, of your working with, with clients? With clients, not much. I mean, it's kind of, to me, I don't know, Sass, what you think, but it's kind of a under, it's in the background. I know how to put things together. I'm very proud of it. With builders, it's a different deal. Most builders don't think architects know how to build. And most most of them don't. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and that's too bad. It's, it would be nice if it were more the other way, but it's a little bit difficult when there's an approach from a builder like you're kind of a moron that doesn't know how things go together. And it takes probably the first couple of months of a project to let them realize that you really do know how to use the tools that they're using and do what they're doing. Mm. I mean, probably, definitely not as well as them. Mm, right. But you know how to do it. You know how hard the work is. So that's a whole part of the building part that uh, was a surprise to me. Hmm. I, I was thinking about the time I was working on a house. I uh, was uh, overseeing it for an uh, architect who was in Philadelphia, and he it was a big firm, and they had younger people just out of architecture school doing the drawings for these buildings. And there was an old-time carpenter on the job, and he would get these drawings from Philadelphia, and he'd look at them and say, but that's impossible. to You can't build that. Mm-hmm. Or if you do that, it, it's it's as if you had a, a foundation form and they were putting holes all through it and they wanted to use the foundation form again. <laughs> so you'd get these calls to, to Philadelphia where the old guy would be yelling at the guy saying, get, a, get up here. I'll give you a hammer. I'll give you a tool belt. I'll teach you how to build. And then you tell me how you want the building <laughs> yeah, built. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Well, you know, the other side of it too, though, is when you wind up with some of the wonderful craftsmen. I mean, that's... That's something that we haven't talked about, but there are craftsmen up here that are it, – it, it's probably what inspired those original shingle-style mm-hmm. guys in the first mm-hmm. place, the skill level of the right. regular craftspeople. But the, even today, you work with good ones, and they understand that you know what you're doing, and you understand that they know what they're doing, and it's like music. It is so much fun to mm-hmm. build with a builder that respects and allows us to do our work – and then they do their work. And you always learn stuff from each other that way, too. Yeah, and sometimes you have to explain that what we're doing, what we're asking them to do, we know is not cost effective. Mm. But it's it's an effect or doing something that the client wants. And we've explained to the client that this is a really expensive thing. But it's okay to uh-huh. do that right. once in a while. Um because a lot of the guys that we work with, are, 
it's sort of personally offensive to them to waste the client's mm-hmm. money. And I love that. But mm-hmm. once in a while, you got to say, hey, we've been over this, and it's really okay. And that's part of the thing that we, all three of us do is sort of a cultural bridge between people who are living urban lives who, who in some cases have – sort of unimaginable amounts of money in terms of what you would expect if you lived here and they want certain things and likewise i think we have to you know we go back to those people and say you know this is really crazy Mm. we'll do it but Mm -hmm. you know why don't we do this instead and that's a delicate dance because sometimes it's a wonderful thing it's just crazy expensive (laughs) the other thing too is you have some clients or in the past i had clients that really enjoyed the act of building and admired the skills of the people working and they would ask for things to bring out the best in these builders if it's like you had a boat builder i I don't know about boats but you had a boat builder that was really good and the person that wanted a new boat just really said let's kick out the jams here Mm -hmm. and and um that's pretty exciting to see, too. I'll list our phone number one more time, one 625 9378 or locally, 469-0500. If you'd like to give us a call and, and participate in our conversation about celebrating how buildings contribute to our sense of place. Uh, that's one 625 9378 Our conversation is with Rock Caivano, Robert Knight, and Barbara Sassman. Um, so you've many of your clients um, have uh, means to build these kinds of things. What about um, the, the, the shift in, in thinking in terms of, um, uh, Bob, you and, and Lucia have kind of uh, helped create an interest in small houses. Those aren't necessarily for the wealthiest people, but they're um, trying to think about um, budget and and scale and environment, all those kinds of things. Tell us a little bit about what led you to some of that early work. Um, Well, I've always liked doing small houses. They're, I don't know, they feel more, they contain you more nicely and you... In a small house, you're always very close to the edges of it, so you can see out. Oh, it was it was my wife Lucia who had the idea of actually selling house plans, which I thought was totally crazy. Um, <laughs> and and she put together or sort of mocked up a book and showed it to me, and I thought, well, you know, this is kind of cool. And so I called a bunch of my clients who we'd done small houses for that were portable. I felt that would work well on different sites. And I beat around the bush a little bit and then said, how would you feel if we sold the plans to your house? And to my utter amazement, out of the 15 people I called, 13 of them said, that'd be kind of cool. Good. We have a call from Richard in Blue Hill. Um, let's take that phone call. Richard, go ahead, please. Yeah, hi. Uh, good morning. Um, thanks for all the interesting talk. Um, a, a little puzzle or piece I'd be interested in any thoughts that your folks had there. Um, it's always struck me about New England residential architecture is sort of what seems to me the unresolved issue of um, the front the front door to a, to a house. <laughs> we're all we're all used to the nice look of the traditional look, but it you know the majority of those doors are never used even in formal settings anymore. And I'm just curious if, if that's something that on their minds and, and how to design an attractive house that, you know, that does look nicely traditional in some ways but still really integrates that front door with the uh, you know with how we use uh, use things um 
I'll, I'll buzz off here. I'm on the road, but thank you. Well, thanks for your question. Uh, go ahead. Uh, who, who would want to respond to that? Well, I think that I think it's a very good question. There's a it's sort of a, a classical sort of balanced symmetrical cape type image or a, a federalist house with a porch and a front door in the middle. They put storm porches on the outside of those things in the old days, they, but they, for some reason they disappeared in the 60s and you don't see them anymore. But they literally were walls and, and an extra door that came out, which cut the, you know, it's an airlock. Um, the other thing that we did a lot in recent years was we put a little airlock mudroom on the inside of the door. So there's ways of treating it as, a, as an energy efficient thing and also a a, a statement in the architectural. But those doors went into the formal part of the house, right? And yeah. Many times. So you didn't really, your life wasn't lived in the formal part of the house. Yeah, so that's, that's what I was going to say. It's A lot of it's social. I mean, it's Maine. You use the back door whether it's yeah. summer or winter. Yeah. So um, I guess it, for for really formal occasions, you'd open the front door. But this is the way we live in Maine. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't tell you the number of houses I worked on where there was a front door, but Really, basically, yeah. it was almost never used. Mm. And when a house gets smaller, like my own house, which is like 1,200 square feet, uh, there's only one door. You know, I mean, there's some back doors mm. to go out into the yard and stuff, but you come up to the house, it's not like, do I go in the kitchen door or the front door? There's only one door. <laughs> but you, you do that. You have to be very careful doing that because people, it's an expectation that people have about wanting, you know, it's like a parlor or... The main, the main thing, I think, is always to, to make sure that when somebody comes to visit you for the first time, they know where to go. Yeah. And that's – a lot of times people will come to you with a, a drawing and you'll say, but wait a minute. They're going to drive up here. You know, how are they going to find your front door if we do yeah. it this way? We have another call from uh, David in Brooklyn. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. And thanks for the show. It's really been enjoyable. Uh, back when I was in the Post and Beams, uh, my boss would say – the front door is the door you drive up to. Let's get this straight. The front <laughs> door is the door you drive up to. I've noticed here in Maine that a lot of people think they feel that the front door is uh, on the coast is the door that looks out on the ocean, mm. which is frequently not the door you drive up to. Mm. It's very confusing. But, you know, uh, uh, it's been a wonderful ramble. And I, I tuned in at the very beginning of the show uh, when we were talking about the... Uh, the indigenous structures uh, temporary built, um, uh, and and the natives, the natives, I mean the ones that knew how to live in this climate, would uh, they were basically uh, 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 migrants, and when winter came, they would go inland to where uh, things stabilized, and it would stay cold once it got cold, and ha- have a different kind of architecture that they would build there. Uh, and I, I just wonder how I marvel at how far we've come from there, how much when we came over from Europe, we Europeans, we brought our notions of permanence with us and uh, uh, tried to set them down like a heavy boot on the, uh, the, the beautifully moving soul of this country. Uh, and it has not, in my own, I, I've been building and living in houses for an awful long time, and uh, in my own view, it has not really worked very well. I think we're trying to do something basically that can't be done. Like, I think that basically wood rots, people die, things change, uh, 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 
insulation is basically, you know, it's the devil's game. It's trying to get something for nothing. You try and build a house that you're never going to have to heat in the winter and put it in Maine. It's not going to work very well. It's immoral. The guys that would let the wind blow through them in Maine and, you know, uh, shrink their living space down till it was just in the kitchen and the rest of the rooms would be, if you want to go there, that's cool, but you got to have your sweater on, you got to have a <laughs> bunch of blankets on your bed. You know, that's the way to do it. You know, that's the honest way to do it. And, like, we have become slaves to our... I feel this is just a little rant, but I don't <laughs> on the soapbox, but, you know... Uh, uh, I'm, like, trying... I'm trying to build an affordable house. And to me, affordable means four thousand. It doesn't mean forty thousand. It doesn't mean a hundred and sixty or hundred and eighty thousand buy-in price, which is what we ran into in Brooklyn last time we tried to talk about affordable housing. And David, uh, thanks for your call. I'm going to let our guest comment, and we're going to move okay, on. Thank, a lot. thank yeah, you very right. much, David's thoughts. Um, so this notion of of really trying to have it all, um, David's bringing out this this notion that can we have a house. Um, that does it all, and and Bob, we were talking about small houses. Um, is that is that a a way that people can well, th- think about having it for longer than a season? And, and yeah, I think it is. I, I, but it, I think there's a really critical component to the small house movement. You have to want a small house. Um, it's not okay. I don't think, or or won't work in any event for the government or somebody else to say, you really don't have much money. You need to live in a smaller house. <laughs> That's not going to cut it. Right. You know, people want what everybody else has. Uh, and one of the things that I was always ironic was to me uh, in Lucia's little houses, the houses in there range from about 1,000 to 2,000 square feet. I drive to work every morning past many houses that are much smaller than a thousand square feet that people have lived in for years, and they don't think of themselves as living in a small house. Sure. It's just the house they live in, and right. they're doing fine, right. you know. But it is fun to live in a small house. I think it's energy efficient too. It's a great idea to build a small house. You know, you can talk about all the solar collectors and stuff, but if you have a small place to heat. You're not using a lot of heat. And I think David made a good point about some of these. Uh, I, I, I call them in Federalist period houses. They're like 1870s, 1890s, kind of after the Civil War period houses. Wood frame. They had a lot of rooms. And they closed a lot of them off. Mm-hmm. And it, it worked quite and well. And you could get from the house to the barn, you know, exactly. without going outside. But yeah. different levels of, of security Exactly. There. Right. And the, the other thing, um, I think someone told me this, is when you have a small house, you want to make sure you have lots of closets. <laughs> and then it, when you have a small house, you want to make sure you have an away place where people that live there can have privacy from each other because there is a certain dimension that our culture seems to need to be apart from each other at and and I think that is a very important that's why Bob's houses are so nice those Lucian's little houses are so nice is because he's got that sort of proportion of space to how far people are from each other Mm. so Mm. that it's not claustrophobic Mm. we're going to be wrapping up in a minute and perhaps each of you could kind of take us on one of your favorite um, drives or walks that that kind of says this is um, this is a good blend of of how um, uh, people are 
are, are living but uh, connected to the environment, connected to, to this sense of place that we, that we um, appreciate here in Maine. Um, any final, final thoughts as we begin to wrap up? You're all looking at me blank. Like hey, I, I, I never asked that question, but I did. I did. So, but what, 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 you know, what places do you really like? Um, in terms of, of this notion of sense of place and how buildings um, play into that sense of place. You don't have to take us on a drive. Just name a couple places. That well, I, I would say a couple places that are kind of historically appropriate and actually on the National Register is West Street and Bar Harbor. Mm. That would be a nice one to walk down and just look at carefully. And, and there's some beautiful buildings there and some nicely restored ones, too. Another place I personally like is the Claremont Hotel down in Southwest Harbor. The scale of the building and the rooms and the and the little buildings around it and so forth, I think they're just really just right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can run into these buildings in surprising places. We, we um, uh, one of the Pretty, I think, is the right term. One of the prettiest buildings in Blue Hill got torn down about 20 years ago. And uh, we we attempted to take it apart and move it to another site. It didn't work. So we, um, we took all the pieces and built a copy of it on a more rural site. But walking around in that house, um, it, all the rooms were just right. You know, mm-hmm. it had this wonderful sense of of being you felt like you were in the right place and that's like scale and proportion and and you know some towns have that i mean the towns that people mention all the time i think have that feeling uh, blue hill does a little bit mm-hmm. um you you feel like you're in a place that you'll remember somesville mm-hmm. always comes to mind um mm-hmm. and all of these places can be a little too twee yeah, yeah. cute but <laughs> yeah. but they all have those moments Mm. Mm-hmm. For me, it might not be a, a whole section of town or whatever. One of the things I found that I really like is if you go to a place where there's a picture window. And by a picture window, I didn't mean a giant picture window like we have here. But a, a window that may be small, but perfectly <laughs> frames the view. And there's maybe there's a tree that you want to highlight. And instead of having a whole wall of window, you just take this one little window and it makes it so special mm. so you come up a set of stairs and all of a sudden there's this tiny little window or you go into the bathroom and you're shaving in the morning and you look out the window and there's this perfect the island out on the harbor is perfectly framed in this little window so that's that conversation between a place and the environment that's outside of yeah. that place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from the inside out from the inside out mm-hmm. sometimes they're, they're just the most uh, intriguing to me any other um, thoughts? Bob, you brought a, uh, brought a book called The well, Perfect House. You want to have a, a the, quote There's there? a wonderful quote. This is Vitol Rybczynski, who's an architectural – he's actually an architect, but he's really an architectural historian at the University of Pennsylvania, the only architecture critic who's worth reading, in my <laughs> humble opinion. But he, this is a book about Palladio, and he spent some time – a lot of time with Palladio's houses – And he lived in one for a while, and he says, paintings are meant to be looked at. Architecture should be lived in. Buildings reveal themselves slowly. They must be seen at different times of day and under different conditions, in sunlight, in darkness, in fog and rain. Houses particularly should be appreciated in small doses. 
for days on end, you may be unaware of your surroundings. Then one day, you stop what you are doing, look around, and indescribably, but unmistakably, you feel that everything, including yourself, is in the right place. (laughs) That's lovely. Well, I think that's where we'll leave it, except to say that these two guys designed the house that I live in, and I have those moments. (laughs) I have those moments. I really do. So thank you for that. And uh, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday morning of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Rock Caivano, a retired architect in Bar Harbor, Robert Knight of Knight Associates and Architects in Blue Hill, and Barbara Sassman, who's a designer and draft person. And also, we didn't get to talk about the design review board. Maybe that's another show. Thank heavens. <laughs> Thanks so much to our underwriters. Thanks to those of you who called with your questions and experience. Thanks for Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from Bay Chamber Concerts and